0: I never got any money from you. Be normal. And now, Mr. Edwards, I would like to make a disclosure, which is something which has never been revealed to the public. This is The Saucer Life, exploring the history and lore of flying saucers. The Saucer Life is a podcast in which we explore concepts, events, or people from the world of flying saucers. No preconceptions, not too much snark, no belief, no debunking. This is Encounter 49, the 70s zine scene. The 1970s were an interesting time for the UFO field. The government, by means of the Condon Report, found a way to get out of the business of publicly caring about the phenomenon, which created a bit more space for private organizations to investigate. NICAP was still around, but struggling. APRO was still around, and a new organization, the Midwest UFO Network, or MUFON for short, had just opened its doors in 1969. This is also an era where new, interesting, glossy newsstand magazines began to appear, and, as we saw last time, a number of documentaries of varying quality emerged as well. So here are some articles I found interesting for a variety of reasons from this decade. Note, I'm avoiding articles on some of the big stories that we haven't covered yet, but will in the future. We're going to start not with a magazine or newsletter, but a press release. APRO, the Aerial Phenomenon Research Organization of Tucson, Arizona, which was headed by Jim and Coral Lorenzen, released a statement on supposed UFO fragments from Ubatuba, Brazil. In 1957, fragments from an exploded, unidentified flying object, or UFO, were recovered by observers on a beach near Ubatuba, Brazil. Some of the fragments were obtained by APRO and were subjected to various chemical analyses in the course of the following 12 years in the laboratories of the Brazilian Ministry of Agriculture, the U.S. Atomic Energy Commission, the Dow Metal Products Company, and the University of Colorado UFO Project. The material was found to be magnesium, Of an unusually high purity. So what was the big deal about some magnesium from 1957? In 1969, APRO proceeded with a structural analysis of the material and two consultants in metallurgy undertook the study. Modern materials science is based on the premise that the properties of a material depend solely on its structure. Chemical composition is important only to the extent it affects structure. The Ubatuba magnesium fragments were found to be directionally solidified castings. Directional solidification is currently being actively investigated in many countries. However, directional solidification was not being studied in 1957 when the fragments were retrieved. This may be interpreted as meaning that the fragments belong to a vehicle from a more advanced civilization. The Ubatuba Magnesium is the only physical evidence known to exist which indicates an extraterrestrial origin for some UFOs. Up to the present, APRO has approximately 20,000 reports of UFO observations received from over 50 countries during the past 19 years. Correlations of these reports have indicated some patterns of intelligence behind UFO performance and behavior, A project is currently underway to computerize all the existing reports, thus enabling more expedient acquisition of the various kinds of data and allowing for more comprehensive correlations. I'm not entirely certain that a form of casting used in the 60s, but not the 50s, is indicative of extraterrestrial piloting of flying saucers. But one of the great things about this press release is that it serves as a reminder That vague and slightly inconclusive lab results about possible saucer debris is a perennial favorite in the UFO literature. Remember that whenever you hear a story about some alloy or something that's being tested. And take comfort in the fact that if you miss whatever materials testing story is currently going around, you can jump on the merry-go-round whenever the next sliver of whatever gets found. Also cool is that this is printed on APRO Stationery, which lists all their consultants down one side. It's interesting to see what names jumped out at me. Leo Sprinkle, their psychology consultant, will be a figure in abduction research later in the 1970s and 80s. And Dr. Robert S. Elwood, their religion consultant, is a very well-regarded religious studies scholar who's written extensively about topics such as mysticism and theosophy. His work on alternative spiritualities in New Zealand included an extensive discussion of George Adamski's impact on UFO belief there. Contrary to what you may perceive, religious studies folks being interested in the UFO phenomenon is not a new thing. New magazines emerged during this decade, and one of them was the somewhat confusingly named Caveat Emptor, or Let the Buyer Beware, edited by Eugene and Geneva Steinberg. In the first issue, from fall 1971, Eugene sets out what Caveat Emptor is for. The purpose of Caveat Emptor is to explore all avenues of the unknown. By that, we do not necessarily limit our coverage to flying saucers, extrasensory perception, and similar borderline fields. We are concerned with any aspect of life that demands further understanding. Politics and religion are within the scope of this magazine, and we also hope to present intelligent satire in forthcoming issues. So basically, Caveat Mtor is a magazine for whatever the editors want it to be, which is pretty convenient. It ran for several years, and Eugene is pretty cagey about his views on the entire phenomenon. He also engages in a lot of name-dropping, talking about hanging out with Jim Mosley in the 1960s and the like. The introductory editorial meanders into discussions of organic food and government surveillance observations. It's weird without being interesting, if that makes sense. There are, however, some deeply interesting articles in this first issue. Alan Greenfield, later to write Secret Rituals of the Men in Black and Secret Cipher of the UFOnauts, pens a new perspective, the alternative reality theory explained. Greenfield states the problem that he's attempting to solve in this way. If one surveys the whole of human history with a sharp and somewhat jaded eye one might notice some disturbing historic events which do not seem to fit in with the orthodox explanations that we are accustomed to hearing. For example, we are perhaps all somewhat familiar with the stories of fairies, leprechauns, and so forth. One thing that is bothersome is the ubiquity of such stories which span the whole of recorded history. If we were to zero in on this particular mythology, we might find an amazing link-up with other strange phenomena. This, in itself, is interesting. Yet the puzzle only begins here, for elves, or whatever you care to call them, are only one of many historical anomalies. Other examples are the records of strange animals, mysterious disappearances, and objects in the sky. Most or all of these can fit into a single web of phenomenon. The problem, then, is this. What do these variables indicate? Are they manifestations of a psychological phenomenon, as per Carl Jung, or are they real in some objective sense? In either case, what are the implications? It's always good to get some folklore overlap with the paranormal and UFO fields, another thing that's not as new as you might think. At the time, Jacques Vallée's Passport to Magonia discussing similar ideas was barely a year old, so these ideas were sort of floating around. So the alternate reality explanation, Greenfield says, goes something like this. Alternate reality is a theory based on the idea that one or more worlds exist outside the perspective to which we are accustomed. Such worlds would not necessarily be of the fourth dimension, but could be caused by some condition completely outside of our experience. The inhabitants or one or more of these worlds may be in communication with our own world, and may in fact have been so for as long as our own universe has existed. The reasons for this theory would be fairly obvious. It explains much, or all, of the historical anomalies without a great amount of point-stretching. In light of this theory, one could explain such things as visions, flying saucers, disappearances. The possibilities are tremendous. The theory may, of course, be quite erroneous. I am, myself, by no means committed to it. But I would suggest that a strong argument in its favor is the very fact that it provides a key to so many unanswered questions. So it's solidly in the borderland science, ultra-dimensional, super spectrum end of the spectrum. The reference list for the article is fun, with The Hobbit, books on werewolves and Greek mythology sitting there alongside Gray Barker's They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. And now for my favorite part of this magazine, this first issue of Caveat Emperor. It's called The Death Throes of Ufology by a Lieutenant Philip Sestling, U.S. Army Reserve. Is it about the aftermath of the Condon Committee report, the end of Project Blue Book? The first paragraph made me think it might be along those lines. As we enter the decade of the 70s, the science of ufology, if there ever was such a thing, seems about to breathe its last. Whoever the saucers and their alleged occupants are, they appear to have abandoned us. It wasn't too long ago that UFOs moved legislators, generals, scientists, and even congressional committees. Of late, most of these notables, whose attention was attracted only briefly to the phenomenon, have returned to more meaningful pursuits. The field has been left in the not-too-competent hands of crackpots, money-grubbers, and teenage study groups. No, it's better than that. The decline of ufology may be summed up by looking at two UFO conventions. The first is the annual Giant Rock Convention. Sessling recounts the storied history of the Giant Rock Festival in pretty evocative terms. The Giant Rock Spacecraft Convention on the California desert is an annual conclave of the faithful which has been held regularly since 1953. Back in the 50s, newspaper publicity and high public interest in the UFOs combined to attract several thousand people to such weekend conventions. True believers, mostly of the little old lady in tennis shoes variety, filled the coffers of the various lecturers, each of whom had a convenient outdoor stand of some sort to hawk his wares. No one seemed to care that, for the most part, the same lecturers gave the same speeches year after year. The lecturers made a good living, the faithful got their annual dose of truth, and everyone was happy. So what were things like by the 1970s? Not so, however, in the year nineteen seventy. By then, the ranks of the leaders were thinned considerably by deaths, despair, alleged disappearances, and depleted finances. The surging crowds of yesteryear were largely missing, replaced by bands of hippies and motorcycle toughs who smoked marijuana openly in the hills overlooking the rock and yelled obscenities down at the hardcore. Drunkenness, drugs, and violence were the order of the day. Even George Van Tassel, the genial host of The Rock, could not dispute or ignore the fact that both the quantity and quality of the crowd had changed radically over the years. While professing to be in tune with the changing times, he nevertheless admitted that the 1971 convention, if it takes place at all, will probably be held indoors, where the audience can be properly screened. This sounds incredible. Drunkenness, drugs, and violence were the order of the day sounds so much more interesting than most UFO conventions I've been to. Sessling continues with some personal complaints and character assassination about the presenters and attendees. Among the scenes witnessed, Stan Friedman, a physicist from the University of Pennsylvania, hawking his material at one of the outdoor booths just like one of the huckster contactees might do. Friedman has apparently lectured with some success at colleges and other institutions around the country, yet he seemed to find no difficulty in sinking to the level of the environment rather than making a meaningful attempt to raise the environment to a more scientific level. His speech at the rock could hardly be called crackpot. Instead, it was insipid and dull and seemed to stir up a vast wave of apathy among the small crowd who were half-pretending to listen. Another memorable scene, saucer author Gray Barker, arriving apparently hungover and bleary-eyed at 4 p.m. to set up his booth after all but one of the day's speakers had already finished. Barker, who has been a consistent exploiter of saucer fans for almost two decades, was accompanied by James W. Mosley and other followers. Mosley, to be sure, has not bilked the public as methodically as Barker over the years. However he is to be remembered for having sponsored in New York City in 1967 the most blatantly commercial UFO convention ever undertaken. This time, the pair was sorely disappointed as their books failed to move, except sadly back into the cartons in which they arrived. Stan Friedman as a young saucer huckster on the make, Gray Barker and Jim Mosley being exposed as exploiters, exploiters, I say, sir, of the UFO community. Is there no decency that ever existed in this field? I'm getting the feeling that once upon a time, some of these saucer people might not have been on the up and up. UFO might just as well stand for unprecedented financial opportunity. See, I told you I would make use of that. The second convention that destroyed young Lieutenant Sestling's faith in ufology was an APRO-sponsored gathering in Baltimore. And so let us pass from this mockery of science and reason to a somewhat less sordid scene. This particular event took place in Baltimore, Maryland in January of this year. Here, though the audience was only slightly more stable than at the Rock, there was a genuine and successful effort to limit the list of speakers to reasonably qualified, educated people. In other words, not a single lecturer from the Rock, with the possible exception of Mr. Friedman, would have been allowed to speak here had he been present. That sounds like it was a boring convention full of science stuff. Not a hint of drunkenness, drugs, or violence, either. Or was there? Something interesting happened after the keynote. Here's Sestling describing the whole tawdry scene. The main speaker at the evening session was Dr. J. Allen Hynek of Northwestern University, former chief scientific consultant to the Air Force's very negative and very defunct UFO investigating project. In spite of persistent troubles with the slide machine, Dr. Hynek managed to give an interesting talk concerning the various categories of UFO sightings in recent years. He also recounted several well-documented sightings that were new to the audience. Persistent troubles with the slide machine sounds like it should be a euphemism for some kind of embarrassing catastrophe. So anyway, after the speech, drama of the kind unseen beyond the confines of a junior high dance would occur. As this was the final speech of the evening, it would be nice to be able to say that the convention ended on this high note. Sadly, such was not the case. Mrs. Lorenzen had been approached earlier in the day by a lady from Massachusetts named Stella Lansing who had brought with her a group of ludicrous UFO movies taken near her home over a period of time. Some of these films had already been shown to a New York-area UFO group, drawing impolite chuckles from even the easily satisfied audience who frequented the group's meetings. Oblivious to the film's past history, Mrs. Lorenzen made the gross error of having a late-evening private showing for APRO members only. It's APRO. After Dark. That's right. Join Jim Lorenzen, Coral Lorenzen, and all the swingin' saucer folks from 1970s live in Baltimore at night. Oh yeah. I'm sorry about that. Back to the thing. Since the film was to be shown in the same hall where Hynek and earlier speakers had held forth, the room had to be cleared of all non-APRO members before the showing could begin. As if this were not awkward enough, the film made such a poor impression on the remaining audience that many of them obviously wished they had left voluntarily when the outsiders were ejected. Dr. Hynek, for instance, was seen leaving the hall at a dead run rather than a walk sometime during the unfortunate viewing. Word of the secret APRO meeting had reached Grey Barker and some of his nefarious associates who were deeply resentful at having been excluded. Barker, having spent quite a bit of the evening in the hotel bar, made a loud scene in the hall outside the meeting room when he tried to physically force himself inside. Coral Lorenzen voluntarily sank to the depths of the occasion by engaging in a loud tug-of-war with Barker at the door. Order was restored eventually by a hotel security guard who encouraged Barker to stagger back toward his room, leaving the secret meeting to the invited members thereof. Gray Barker's nefarious associate's return... We know from Jim Mosley's memoirs that there was no love lost between Coral Lawrence and Gray Barker, and the ludicrous scene described here is all too easy to imagine. Once again, this sounds like much less fun than Giant Rock, although drunk Gray Barker trying to invade an APRO meeting while Dr. Hynek runs away is good stuff. And I kind of wonder to what degree this review is, is tongue-in-cheek, um, Gene Steinberg is in charge of this. He hung with Grey Barker and Mosley in that crowd. I have a feeling that Gene Steinberg might have been one of Gray Barker's hangers on at this point. Anyway, Caveat emptor ran for a few years, disappearing and then reappearing in 1989. Those issues really will have to wait until a later episode, but I do want to share the letter, the heartfelt letter that Steinberg wrote to his readers upon the magazine's return. Dear friend. Some 15 years ago, I was the editor of Caveat Emptor, a controversial, trailblazing UFO in New Age magazine. Like other publications of the period, it finally published its last issue and disappeared from the scene. Then, in July 1988, I had a crazy idea. I decided the time was right to bring back Caveat Emptor. While well, the decision to revive the magazine came with a lot of uncertainty. Caveat Emptor occupied a distinct and special place in the minds and hearts of our readers. I remember how some of them, perhaps you, if you were one of our original subscribers, would tell me how the magazine would transport them away from the humdrum daily routine and into a marvelous world of excitement and wonder. I didn't know if I could recreate that kind of feeling on the part of my readers. I didn't know if I could feel it myself anymore. A few months later, and the hard work of putting out that first issue was over, I had to await the reaction from my readers. It wasn't long in coming, I was truly amazed that anyone remembered us at all. The avalanche of letters from my new loyal readers just knocked me out. Here are a few of them. There follows a few snippets from letters that were obviously genuine in every way. These letters speak for themselves. I would just like to take this opportunity to add that many of our original writers have returned with new perspectives and with bold new findings about the strange and unknown. The UFO field is indeed changing, and Caveat MTOR is the magazine that will help pave the way for that change. Are you ready to go where no one has gone before? Then subscribe to Caveat MTOR right now, order a single copy, or subscribe now at a special introductory rate. And thanks for reading my letter. Peace, Gene Steinberg. I thought this was pretty cool and kind of heartwarming until I saw it repeated word for word in all the remaining issues, including the very last one. I do hope that anyone who sent in money for a subscription got a refund and that this wasn't all some kind of scheme. There's also this important bit of editorial from the final issue, so far, of Adam Tour from fall 1990, and I think this gives us some real insight into the saucer culture of the time and indeed some stuff to think about. In our last issue, I remarked on why I'd probably be the last person to buy a fax machine. I thought it quite an unnecessary appliance for my particular environment, though I can see why the things have caught on so quickly. A couple of weeks later, I bought one of these contraptions. Not necessarily for use with this magazine, mind you, but the capability is there if anyone is interested. The unit includes an answering machine that automatically switches between voice and fax. If you need to send us a fax, it's best to call first and arrange in advance the sending of material. If you hear the message, just wait until the beep and start your transmission. It's as simple as that. If you're a glutton for punishment, you can also reach me via email on the Genie in America online services. Better yet, an old-fashioned letter is much to be preferred. Although, truth to tell, I don't have as much time as I used to for letter writing, but I enjoy getting your letters, so stay in touch. Peace, Gene Steinberg. It's like an Andy Rooney bit from 60 Minutes or something. Man doesn't buy fax machine, then later buys fax machine. wonder if Gene Steinberg ever got on board with the email. I guess we'll never know. Finally, not finally, next, rather, there's Anomaly, an irregular newsletter published by John Keel. A lot of what we see in Anomaly could be rough drafts of ideas and stories that Keel would later find room for in his books. There's also usually a good crossover between the paranormal and other topics, such as folklore and psychology. Here's one example, Sex and the Single Sorcerer, from Winter, 1971. We have been quietly studying sexual effects of UFO contacts since 1966 and have a number of detailed, unpublished reports in our files. The best-known case of this sort, Brazil's Antonio Villas-Boas, is only a minor example. In 1966 and 67, we uncovered a number of sexual encounter incidents in several states, concentrated around college campuses. Some cases were referred to local psychiatrists. Since 1967, we have approached a number of magazines about doing a documented article on these cases. Every editor rejected the suggestion. And of course, the ufologists themselves tend to ignore or suppress such reports. APRO received Dr. Fonta's detailed medical report of the V.S. Boas case in the late 50s, but did not release it until 1966. Essentially, these sexual encounters follow the pattern of the well-known incubus-succubus phenomenon found in religious and psychic lore. The same patterns are prevalent in the fairy lore. We discussed this briefly in our various books, and Brad Steiger devoted a chapter of his book, Haunted Lovers, to other cases he had independently uncovered. Others, such as Dr. Berthold Schwartz, have studied cases in which the witnesses' genitalia were somehow affected after a UFO experience. Barney Hill developed a ring of warts around his sex organ. Other participants have come down with the symptoms of venereal disease. Usually these symptoms persist for a day or two and then disappear. Obviously, sex and the sexual system play a mysterious role in these manifestations. We've been conducting our own studies into this aspect quietly, hoping to develop a rational hypothesis before bringing such a delicate matter into the open. At this point, our studies seem to confirm our general contention that hallucination and confabulation play vital parts in all contactee reports. Barney Hill's genital warts only on the saucer life. In a similar vein, in summer 1972, a lengthy article called Medical Aspects of Non-Events outlines some of the psychological and physical effects of encounters with the paranormal. Keel would reuse some of the section headings in this article in later books, including this one, Games Non-People Play. Traditionally, the contact experience begins with a visual hallucination which establishes the frame of reference. The victims see and converse with an angel, seeing and talking to angels is a widespread phenomenon even today. A demon, a spaceman, or even a large animal of some sort. In a number of unpublished cases in our files, the witness first had a seemingly chance encounter with a man in a gray or black suit, or a woman in a long Indian-style dress. These entities quickly establish that they know everything about their victim's history, and can accurately predict his or her future. At first, they appear almost daily before the percipient, passing along valid information and advice, and creating a solid friendship. If the UFO frame of reference is being used, the first encounter may be staged on an isolated road. Often, the victim goes to the first encounter on sheer impulse. That is, they suddenly get an urge to get into their car and go for a pointless drive. But a skillful interview usually brings a number of seemingly unrelated facts to the surface. The victim may have had a series of minor experiences and symptoms long before the first contact. Another early warning sign of impending contact is the number-calling phenomenon. Here, the victim begins to hear a monotone voice calling out meaningless numbers over the radio or television set. In some cases, the numbers are read to them over the telephone in a succession of mysterious phone calls. The victim is always alone when this happens. If another person should enter the room while numbers are being recited on the TV, for example, the voice will suddenly cease. So, the victim is prepared for contact subliminally. Perhaps this process even programs their mind in the same way that a computer is programmed. Keel concludes the article with some assertions about the UFO mystery and its eventual solution. As we have stated so often, in so many ways, The phenomena are much more complex than anything envisioned by the believers. We are dealing with forces which can alter reality itself and make us see anything, believe anything, and worst of all, do anything. Every July, dozens, perhaps hundreds we don't know about, of people suffer amnesia and vanish. A few come back, baffled and unable to account for their disappearances. Others experience shorter periods of amnesia, and they do know, they think, where they've been. They've been to heaven or Antarctica, or the planet Jupiter. Each year, thousands of people throughout the world see angels, the devil, assorted monsters, even dinosaurs. Others wander into the past or future through some mysterious door in the Twilight Zone. Still others are found in a mindless catatonic trance, staring into space, abandoned by their consciousness. Our little planet is haunted. Are we all biological robots ruled and controlled by some outside force, as the great religions have taught for thousands of years? Or are all of our cults and fringe beliefs based upon the capriciousness of the human mind itself? On a line by itself below the article in all caps is one sentence. Have you read the Midich Cuckoos? This is a novel by John Wyndham from 1957 in which women in an English village are impregnated by aliens and the resulting children are capable of mind control and telepathy. You're probably more familiar with the film based on the book, Village of the Damned. If you've read the book, the connections Keel hints at are a bit sinister. It's a creepy book, anyway. You should read it. In the summer 1972 issue of Anomaly, Keel reviews J. Allen Hynek's book, The UFO Experience. Hynek's profile right now and whatever year this is, is pretty high with the Project Blue Book TV show and Mark McConnell's recent biography, The Close Encounters Man. What was Kiel's take on Hynek's well-regarded book? One would expect any book written by Dr. Hynek to be the last word on the subject. Unfortunately, the UFO experience is a great disappointment and vastly inferior to Dr. Valet's Anatomy of a Phenomenon, a 1966 effort which tackled the same matters more effectively and scientifically. At best, Hynek's work can be rated with the very earliest UFO books, often naive in tone, intensely personal, inordinately defensive, and lastly, a belabored attempt to sell the reality of the phenomenon to the reader. The overall approach has become archaic, and Hynek has chosen not to reveal whatever he may have learned in his 20-year sojourn through the Never Never Land of Flying Saucers. It is an unexpectedly shallow book, overly subjective, and unfairly critical of the Air Force and Dr. Condon. Heinck's vituperations are ill-mannered and ill-advised, ah, so uh hmm, not great. so the last publication we're going to look at is a glossy newsstand magazine called Beyond Reality, and it featured writers occasionally like John Keel, ubiquitous paranormal journalist Brad Steiger, and others names you'd probably recognized. Beyond Reality tried to echo the popular notion of the times that all these phenomena might be connected, and I found one very promising article from the November 1976 issue called Ghosts, UFOs, Fortean. Is there a connection? Disappointingly, the article was mostly just old ghost stories that featured things that glowed, and the final sentences of the article attempt to answer the question posed by the title to the classic ghost tales have with the UFO mystery. At the present moment, it's impossible to tell. Thanks, Beyond Reality. You've cleared everything up. No, the best part of the magazine was the classified ads. Here's a sampling. Books and catalogs. The Human Cougar, an Endangered Species. Exciting adventures of today's working drifters and loners with the cougar strain ideal gift, your bookstore 895 or Prometheus Books, 923 Kensington Avenue, Buffalo, New York, 14215. I need to track down that book because I want to know if I am a human cougar, and I'd kinda of like to be a working drifter. That sounds like uh, kind of a kind of a cool gig. It's kind of like being an Uber driver, really. You're just sort of drifting around and and working, but you're sort of could pretty much live out of your car if you were an uber driver couldn't you um uber driver as working drifter new scholarly article for somebody to work on prometheus books by the way is the publishing arm of the committee for skeptical inquiry the old psycop people so that's an interesting uh, interesting book for them to be selling uh the next one is uh is pretty interesting as well women command sex through astrology Band book teaches rush three dollars lantern house box one seventy seven C Novi Michigan four eight zero five zero. Perhaps not coincidentally, that ad is followed by this one: prophylactic contraceptives three samples one dollar Losurube fifty four thirty Camerling Chicago Illinois six zero six five one. Finally, are you lonely? Does astrology not even offer you a way out of your isolation? Can you not command sex adequately? This might be for you. A friend beyond earthly desires. Appears by command only. Any subject. Fast, accurate answers. Guaranteed scientific proof. Complete kit $10. P.O. Box 18673B. Colonial Station, Seattle, Washington. 98118. This is the sort of stuff I loved as a kid. You could always find it in the back of UFO magazines or Weird Paranormal magazines or the Weekly World News. And don't worry, we're going to be doing a whole Weekly World News thing at some point. Forget the articles. The shady, sleazy, vaguely illegal-sounding ads in the back were where it's at. If this selection of zines tells us anything... It's that things were getting more eclectic in the 1970s. The nuts and bolts saucer mags were still out there, but things were expanding a bit, and in a way that was more accessible than the occult stylings of Mead Lane and the Borderland folks back in the 40s and 50s. The current trends in ufology today, at least the ones that I think are most worth looking at, owe a lot to what people like Keel and Greenfield were working on back in the 1970s. Next time, it's our 50th episode, not counting bonus encounters and the like. I was trying to come up with something special and couldn't, so I've at least come up with something we haven't done yet. I will answer a selection of reader questions on anything, unless I decide not to. Send questions to us on Twitter or Instagram at Saucer via email at thesaucerlife at gmail.com or in a comment on this episode's post at saucerlife.com. We've got some great questions already, but could always use more. Tune in next time for Encounter 50, listener question extravaganza. The Saucer Life is a Chizo Media production. And till next time, keep reading the magazines. Because the magazines are reading you? I guess that one didn't really work.